This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. How Sound is a collaboration of PRX and Transom. I'm Rob Rosenthal. I'm the host and producer of the podcast. I collect clips. You know, some people collect rocks or stamps or records. I collect excerpts from radio stories and podcasts because I guess I'm a little weird. They're just little gems that tickle my fancy or in some cases raise an eyebrow. Like, why'd you do it that way? I hope you've got your ears on because I have a whole bunch of these gems to play for you on this episode. And let's jump right into the deep end. In fact, no introduction to this clip, though I will say it may be difficult for some people to listen to because of the subject matter and the language, kids in particular. And man, you're not going to believe this. Ready? There's a little room in downtown Vancouver. Ugly yellow and white linoleum floors, space for maybe half a dozen people. A couple of stainless steel tables along the walls. It doesn't look like much, but the story of this room is really important. It shows us how we can win. Do you mind hanging out with me while you do this? Is that okay, or will I be bothering you? Um, No, you won't be bothering me. This is Sheffy. Sheffy works at the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, or Vandu for short. His job is to hang out in the hallway just outside of this room. He watches as people use their drugs. And if they start to overdose, he's got an oxygen tank and some naloxone. He knows first aid. He can save their lives. But right now, Sheffy's shift is just ending. So he pulls out a little cooker and pours in some orange-colored powder. Yeah, there's all different colors now. There's like a... Purple pebbles yesterday or whatever. There's yellow, there's orange. And uh, they're just mixing food coloring in with the caffeine and that, and then the fentanyl. Uh, And I'm just going to get a shot ready for myself here. Sheffy turns to Kevin, the guy who's taking the next shift. But I, I got to get somebody to do it for me. Will you hit me? Yeah, I get it. No, it's You want to do a jug He's got a jug me, so you get to see it. Jugging means to inject into your neck, into the jugular vein. Some people like to do this because they want the drugs to hit faster. Others do it because they've blown out all their veins from repeated injections, like I have. My veins are fucked. You got orange. I'm jealous. See, and I, I flagged back, and the blood oh, came in there. Make sure it's still in there. Uh. Kevin is a maestro with the syringe, which is important because the jugular is a dangerous place to inject. One slip, and you could do some serious damage. And here we go. Too fast. Okay. Sheffy is lying on the linoleum. Kevin has pulled a chair into the room. Reaching down, he gently aligns Sheffy's head. He runs a finger along the protruding neck vein, slides the needle in, and pulls the plunger back. Just a touch. A red flag of blood blooms in the syringe. Some people just keep going, and it's wasting person's um, hit. And the the neck is the most dangerous spot, so you got to make sure you stop. Kevin's a fairly big guy. Sheffy is smaller. And something about the way that Kevin is cradling Sheffy's head looks very tender. Okay, okay, take your breath, take a second. Okay, go. Kevin discards the used needle into a sharps box and cleans up. Everyone is just kind of looking at Sheffy lying on the ground. Are you all right? Yeah. Why don't you get up? Make you get company here and make it look bad, make it look bad. Fucking How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling good. Actually, I'm feeling really good. We better get up. Oh, I went up. Kevin and I help Sheffy up onto his feet. He looks at us and smiles. Hold on, 
Jimmy. Yeah. I just want to see my baby today. <laughs> just want How's that for the radio show? Wow. Well. <laughs> <This guy. laughs> Can't say I didn't warn you. Incredible tape, right? That's from Crackdown, a podcast with the tagline, The Drug War, covered by drug users as war correspondents. Garth Mullins is the producer, and there's no two ways about it. Garth wears his politics on his sleeve. The podcast has a clear point of view. Drug addicts not only need a safe place to use, they deserve a safe place to use their drugs. Garth, as a user himself, has incredible access to activists, addicts, and academics. If you're looking for an in-your-face, unvarnished, and just relentless perspective on the drug epidemic, Crackdown is your podcast. Episodes drop once a month. I do have one lament, though. It may be my misunderstanding, but here it is. As I mentioned, the tagline for Crackdown reads, Drug Users as War Correspondents. Now, in my head, that means addicts will have microphones and ask questions, which is a genius idea. However, I'm several episodes in, and that hasn't happened. So far, only Garth holds the mic. Now, according to the website, there's an editorial board made up of drug user activists, and perhaps that's what they mean by drug users as war correspondents. But I'm waiting to hear Crackdown's version of Ghetto Life 101 or Radio Diaries or the Life Stories series where people who aren't journalists control the mic. Until then, I'll keep listening, though, for sure. Okay, let's stay in Canada for the next clip, but it's something completely different. Here's a quote from this piece. When there's no sound... Hearing is most alert. When there's no sound, hearing is most alert. There are places in the imagination where the sound falls into itself like freezing. Where the soft crackle of ions moves into the air on snow feet made of fine wire. Suddenly you are there from behind a boulder where you have been watching the moss begin. And it's as if somebody were filling a strangely shaped cup with water from a tap somewhere close to your ear. And you have the memory of vast distances with hawks on the horizon, where the world became a kind of ache, a species of limb that is part of the larger universe. And suddenly nothing is so real as these hands wanting always to touch things, or these eyes which disappear immediately into the rivers like a breed of nocturnal salamanders. night, you can hear the bones of the forest, the ancient ones making terrible love. You can hear the wind, the godfather beating his ice wings.
Ah, that's beautiful. A lovely little, I don't know, audio poem of sorts from Hildegard Westerkamp. It's called Whisper Study. I heard it on a lovely little sound art podcast called Constellations. So much audio storytelling is predictable, like the narration and the writing and the overall sound. I mean, look, even how sound falls into that category. But the podcast Constellations is really a superb reminder that the possibilities with sound are, are they're limitless. It's produced by Jess Shane and Michelle Macklem. Now, a quick word about Hildegard Westerkamp. I first encountered her work on a recording called Soundscape Vancouver 96. It's a two-CD set of sounds from the city of Vancouver. And it was a follow-up to a similar study conducted by R. Murray Schaefer in the early 1970s. Hildegard is an acoustic ecologist. She studies the sonic landscape. She's also a sound artist. Perhaps she's best known for sound walks. I feel like these were pretty popular at the turn of the century. It's a simple idea. You walk and record and listen. Listen deliberately. It's a way to tune yourself to the world of sound around you. Sound that we just typically let wash over us, unnoticed. You can probably include whisper study in the category of sound walk. All right, next up, a few shorter pieces. I want to talk about stepping on tape. I think there's two types of stepping on tape. The first is when a narrator says something that is said in a quote. You don't want to do that typically. The quote should move the story forward, not repeat what was just said. And the worst is when the exact words are used, like it's an echo. You don't hear it too often, but I caught an example of this just the other day in an NPR newscast. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker is ending his run for president. NPR's Don Gagne reports when the Democrat entered the race, he was considered a candidate to watch. When he got into the race, Cory Booker was considered one of those candidates to watch. (laughs) That cracks me up. I'm not sure how that slipped by the editors, but yeah, you want to avoid stepping on the tape like that. Another type of stepping on the tape is when someone talks over another person, like two people are talking at the same time. That's something to avoid. But once in a while, it totally works. And I have two examples. In the first, a reporter talks over the answer someone is giving. Usually, you just want to shut your trap as soon as the interviewee starts talking. But the following exchange, it's just perfect. It's between Ben Adair, a reporter and producer, and Joe Loya, a bank robber. How much had you planned this all out in advance? Like, None. What did you know going None. into it? How are you going to go in? How are you going to get away? None. 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 I mean, you can't just rob a bank with no plan, can you? That slays me. I'm so glad Ben didn't stop asking questions. Their back and forth says more than if it was just a typical question and answer exchange. That clip, by the way, comes from The Score, Bank Robber Diaries. In fact, that's the opening to the podcast series, and believe it or not, it gets better. I have another example of stepping on tape. In this one, two people are being interviewed, and they talk over each other. Now, often, as an interviewer, you try to control the conversation a bit more, so you record answers free and clear, no disruption, unless unless the interaction between the two people says more than the individual answers could. Like in this clip from the podcast Bear Brook, the interruptions provide character development. And one of the first things I wanted to learn more about was the town where the bodies were found. The town where Jesse Morgan, who found the barrel as a kid, grew up. A town with a population just shy of 4,300. You got it? All right. Allenstown, New Hampshire. We were only going to be there a few years. It wasn't, 
and then he started the business and the you know life went on and before you know it jesse's parents ann and kevin morgan moved to allenstown in the 1970s into a trailer park called bear brook gardens the morgans have been married a long time they're not exactly finishing each other's sentences but they do have a way of talking at the same time. I mean, the only secrets would be behind the walls of the, of in the homes. But yeah. you know, to socialize, and, you heard and we used to have uh, neighborhood parties. You heard things. The neighborhood was always invited, and we, I would say, we partied a little more than I would like my kids we, to. Um, but. We heard things that would go around the park. That, in Bearbrook Gardens, the Morgans were the center of gravity for the community. They threw the big barbecues, had all the neighborhood kids over for sleepovers. We were all just friends. Yeah. And we helped each other. I can remember helping people cut wood. Yeah. And Eddie, I mean, on a hard winter, I mean, there were winters ten below up. There was nothing in the winter, and you know, no, none of the cars in the neighborhood would start, except for maybe one car. We'd go. I remember going over to our friend's house, and that one car would start all our cars. Yeah. So we could all go to work. <laughs> You know, we were all just young families. We didn't have money, you know. That's from Bearbrook, the story of a weird and gruesome murder. Jason Moon is the reporter, and the podcast was produced by New Hampshire Public Radio. All right, on to the next one. Here's a sweet little piece of tape. The recording is awful. The questions in the interview are stilted. They have no life. And yet, I'm so glad I heard this recording of the late Toni Morrison. And as you listen, please keep an ear out for the use of reverb. It's a pretty interesting choice. Interview with Toni Morrison for the Paris Review. (coughs) When I first read jazz, I thought to myself, from the very first encounter, it makes us hungry. Hungry for something more. Some experience it contains that we did not know we needed and wanted. Once you're in it, you can't get out of it, whoever you may have been before. Did you intend to have this effect on all of us, and did the novel do this to you in writing it? I'd like to think that I create an appetite and then fulfill it. Um, especially with jazz, because what music does and what the quality that I wanted to exist was, you know, that sense you get that the musician has more, but he's not going to give it to you. It's an exercise of restraint, uh, a kind of a holding back, not because it is not there, or because one has exhausted it, um, but because of the riches and because it can be done again. And that sense of knowing when to stop is, is a learned thing. I didn't always have it. Your novels are known for their extraordinary beauty, the beauty of their language and their inclusion of beauty as part of life. How do you handle beauty in fiction? Um, this is something that has preoccupied me for a long time. I think of beauty as, um, an absolute necessity. I don't think it's a privilege or an indulgence. It's not even a quest. I think it's 
almost like knowledge, which is to say, it's what we were born for. I think uh, finding, incorporating, and then representing beauty is what humans do. Uh, with or without authorities telling us what it is, I think it would exist in any case. The startle and the wonder of being in this place, uh, which is part of our pity, I think, our feeling of being bereft, is this overwhelming beauty. Some of it's natural, some of it's man-made, some of it's casual, some of it's is a mere glance, is an absolute necessity. I don't think we can do without it any more than we can do without dreams or oxygen. Now what has happened, I think, a great deal is that in you know, conceptual terms we can fuse it or even make it into glamour or into Ah, Tony, Tony Morrison. Can I just say, just a side note, thank you, Tony, for your novels, The Bluest Eye and Beloved. I still feel them, even though it's been years since I read them. Isn't Tony a remarkable speaker, despite the stiffness of the interview? I mean, it's stunning, really. That's from the Paris Review podcast. The interview was conducted by Claudia Brodsky-Lacour. She's a professor at Princeton, which is where the interview was recorded in the 1990s. I like the use of reverb. Tony died a couple of months before this episode on the Paris Review. I feel like the reverb, especially as it increases over the course of the interview, is a kind of nod toward Tony's passing. Though I have to say, I think I the ending is mushy. I would have cut the end here. Any more than we can do without dreams or oxygen. Yeah, and there. Just let the piano note tail off. To have Tony continue talking like this. Or oxygen. Now what has happened, I think... It dilutes the power of what Tony just said. But regardless, I loved hearing Tony's thoughts. You got time for one last clip? Here it comes. When Ira Glass talks publicly about the craft of reporting and storytelling... He sometimes says he likes to include little bits of tape, little moments that are there purely to satisfy him. They aren't necessary. If they weren't in the story, it might not matter. They just make him happy. I think Jad Abumrad included a moment in Dolly Parton's America that does just that. I think it was just for Jad to make him happy and anyone who loves radio. A not-so-secret, secret message to radio freaks like, I know you're out there. I feel you, and this is for you. It comes at the end of episode four. Jad's all blissed out, visiting Dolly Parton's original home. Standing on the neon green moss, I spent a lot of time listening to the wind blow through the gigantic Virginia pines that line Dolly's property. In the pines and the pines, where the sun never shines, and you shiver when the cold wind blows. 
I thought about the different kinds of wind that can blow through a place. Yeah, you know what? Can I say something about this? I I don't know. Sometimes I think Chad fawned a little too much over Dolly and the whole Dolly-verse in that podcast. Did you think that too? Especially in the first few episodes. Other times, like the series was pure genius and just so worth listening to for its exploration of race and gender and immigration and women's rights and so on. It's just so good. But sometimes... There might have been just a little too much Chad. But anyway, Chad's blissed out. And then there's this moment right here. This made my little radio heart go pitter-patter. In the wake of that visit, I kept thinking about all the different ways, all the weird ways that music and stories from different places can mix together in the Dollyverse. And I kept thinking about a story that my dad told me. You know, because we were sort of... But the first time he entered the Dollyverse, he told me that in his little village in Lebanon, on the other side of the church... On the other side, there were a couple of small shops that sold grocery and meat. And that guy had a radio. We used to congregate in front of that shop because that's how we listened to the music. Yeah. Do you re- would you recall what you heard? Oh, we heard... Fairuz. That's where I heard the first Western music. Asked him, what about Dolly? Do you think it was, it's possible that you might have heard her there too? Probably, probably. Sitting on the front porch on a summer afternoon In a straight back chair on two legs Now I work in radio, so perhaps this is a convenient metaphor, but I think about that radio, that little radio in his village. About the ether on the way to that radio where all the signals commingle and have forever, and how we're all temporary holding spaces that the signals pass through on their way back into the ether. Ah, Chad. From one radio nerd to another, you crushed it. Marconi thanks you. Honeysuckle vine clings to the fence along the lane. Their fragrance makes the summer wind so sweet. And All right, well, there's a sampler of little gems and a couple of moments that raised my eyebrows. Clips from Crackdown, Constellations, Bank Robber Diaries, Bear Brook, The Paris Review, and Dolly Parton's America. We've got links to everything at the post for this episode of How Sound at transom.org. How Sound is a production of PRX and Transom. Thank you, John Barth, and thanks also to WPLN in Nashville. They let me tie up one of their studios for a little while to record my narration. Much obliged. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. From PRX and Transom dot org.